All right. We're we're good. We're going. We're live. Movies. Yeah. How how are you doing, uh, Calvin? You sound a little under the weather right now. <laughs> I'm just sick of all the bullshit out there. <laughs> I think you're just sick again. It's been a long time since you've been sick. You know, it's usually a staple of our show that at least once a month or so, every four episodes, you, <laughs> you usually contract a cold. Uh, I'm assuming you're making up a little bit for this last year now that we've hit the uh, the cold season up here in the great Pacific Northwest. It's a all out insurrection against my immune system. <laughs> well, I'm happy to see at least that you're uh, fighting it enough uh, to to be here on the show with me. Yeah, I'm happy to be here again. And uh, we're going to keep it a little bit briefer than last last time. We went like an hour 40 or so. So we don't need it, to do that again. It is a long episode. I lost track of time i stopped paying attention once we got into like the latter half just because i was having such good conversation about everything i'm like i could i could do this for a couple more hours if we really wanted what i'm saying is i don't want to have that much fun this week that's want to keep the fun down in the um you you know who who needs fun anyway uh this was never a pro fun show to begin with like like one clint eastwood let's do it in one take i say okay (laughs) um Keep it matter of fact to the point. <laughs> I agree. Uh, let's uh, try and be as monosyllabic as possible. Uh, show little emotion in terms of our uh, performances here overall, and just kind of uh, give give each other hard looks the entire time. I think then we'll get the message across perfectly. Yeah, I agree. So, movies are they any good? Yeah. Well, uh, as we all know, uh, January is not always a great month for movies uh particularly new ones anyway um and i'm sure even worse uh this year since we're coming off of uh, a year full of january's it would seem <laughs> 2020 the longest january yeah <laughs> certainly felt like it in more than one regard fuck you it's 2020 <laughs> <laughs> Did you, uh, yeah so uh tell me Kevin, uh, what do you watch recently um I'm thinking back to some of the things I kind of forget. We had that lapse of coverage. So um, I'm going to throw one or two things out and you'll tell me if I've talked to you about them. Okay. (laughs) Another round. Have we talked about that? Nope. I don't think we've talked about that on the show and I've only heard like bits and pieces about it here and there. That's like the latest Mad Nickel, Mads Nicholson film. Mads Uh, Nicholson. um, And it's centering around his character. Um, so have you heard anything about it? Where are you at? Where are you at? I've I've heard just like general positivity towards it. Um, you know, a couple of detractors I've seen, uh, but mostly, oh, really? <laughs> no, yeah, m- mostly good things about this one. People seem to be enthusiastic. It was a late uh, twenty twenty film that kind of made the rounds and such. Well, it's another Vinterberg movie, like The Hunt, but. Um... He's gone through a lot of personal depressions, and uh, I think he had some personal tragedies just the last wow. few years. So uh, he's able to like funnel that into a more, I'd say, not optimistic, but level script. Um, for here, Mads Mikkelsen and a group of teachers are finding the right level of inebriation. Um, uh, Mads' character feels like he's just at an end in life, and uh, he's not finding the pleasure he used to. His class doesn't listen to him when he talks. He's uh, just bored and dried out. So they undertake a philosophical experiment that they'll catalog 
um, what the right level of inebriation was for each day. So they'll stay constantly drunk, but just at the proper level. And of course, that doesn't always work out. <laughs> Eventually, they feel good enough and they want to indulge more. And they're like, what if we go above the proper level? Then what does that do to our interactions with people? So it becomes like a philosophical experiment about alcohol, which although I'm an alcoholic and done with it, I understand the importance of, of alcohol as like the the first time we got like society together was once we had like, you know, beers. And I yeah. understand the watering hole, you know. Well, I mean, I don't think it's uh, a controversial statement to say that alcohol imbibement is a cultural institution that yeah. transcends, uh, you know, borders certainly as well i think we all have our different traditions that we understand uh you know there was a time in our country where we tried to get rid of it and uh that didn't work at all like yeah, you can't. So. <laughs> i don't it, think it works without alcohol i mean it's I, an, I it's an important it's an important tradition that goes even for those of us who don't imbibe it so much you you know based on you know quitting entirely me who's just a pansy and doesn't like to drink a whole lot um but that's fine you have to yeah. drink the right amount you yeah. have to stay at 0.8 alcohol your entire life. So. There we go. That's what, that's what I'm looking for. Uh, that's a better way to phrase it. I'm I'm actually conducting that experiment intermittently throughout my life. Just, you see, just I, getting like buzzed enough. And then, I think that's oh, smarter. Oh. I wish I could do that. I, I never had that ability to abstain enough to just have the right amount. Like, I don't think it's being a pansy. I think that's just moderation. And I think that's what this movie preaches is moderation is the key. No, it's a it's a good thing. I mean, I think that's a statement most of us could get on board with, you know. Yeah. For me, not possible, but yeah, no. if it's well, possible. I mean, some of the characters in this movie, it's not possible for them. Uh, <laughs> after long enough in this experiment, they, it all starts well. It starts like alcohol usually it all does. It always starts well. That yeah. sounds like just every alcohol story. It starts well. <laughs> it starts well, and it also ends well. I mean, it recovers. Um that's not how most alcohol stories end. No. <laughs> the ending's a real hair of the dog moment. It's a it's a real recovery from a what from the darkness that's in the middle. Um we've talked recently like modern movies don't have elaborate dance sequences. Here it has Mads Mickelson, I think the best ending of the last year, maybe couple of years. He's doing like this sprawling sequence with alcohol and there's all these sailors out on the on the dock. It's just the most beautiful thing. Uh really stunning dance and his movement is so flowing and and gorgeous it it really ties the film together and and one that's pretty quiet i mean it doesn't have a lot of elaborate pieces no real action so that's nice to have at the end there you said uh earlier that this is the same director from uh the hunt which i know is another film that uh you you have a great enjoyment of uh would you say it compares favor favorably to that the only thing is i I think I would love any Danish director. I, I seem to connect like I did that Nordic festival and I'm like, I love everything here. <laughs> so I should really be getting into this. And I love the hunt and this connects the same way for me. I've heard for others, they want more of the cynicism, but I, I don't think it needs it. Who, I, who needs cynicism right now? Come on. We got enough of that. I, I think it's cynical enough. I mean, I think it, I think it treats the characters fairly. I think that's all you could ask. Uh, sounds uh, good, like a good endorsement for that. One of the uh, non-January films of 2020. <laughs> That's true. I don't know when it came out or is coming out. I don't. I don't have any track of that this time of year. But I, is it not out? I thought it was. Hold on. I think it's it released December. Like, like okay, it, it came, came around. Yeah, it's it on video on stuff. demand at least. Yeah, yeah. So go watch it. Yeah. 
Uh, was there any other things to highlight that uh, came out recently? I know it's been a while. Nope. Lots of things. nope. <laughs> Nothing at all. Well, there's be more. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, I guess I can highlight something that uh, I watched this week as well. Uh, going forward, I think we're going to try and do this. I'm just going to throw out stuff. Not new things, of course, because, uh, you know, who watches the new things? But uh, uh, something else. You know, I'm always diving into new stuff for me and finding gems and classics and sometimes trash. Trash is sometimes fun to talk about too. Uh, I'll let I'll let you uh, pick here though, Calvin. I'll give you you can pick a, a great film I watched or a kind of mediocre one. I feel like great is the way to go over mediocre. I I want something you're impassioned about. So. Okay, all right. I'll talk about this. This one actually works good. I just came off of this. Literally finished the movie like uh, twenty minutes ago. Okay. Uh, I just watched. I've been going through. Of course, I'm watching lots of uh, Fritz Lang films. Uh, over the past couple months a lot of his silent stuff i've almost watched uh all of it because oh, wow. yeah but this one was a follow-up to one of his uh bigger ones uh and that's uh the testament of dr mabuse which was the second sound film he made after m and a continuation of his uh, uh crime lord uh serial kind of uh, series there with uh, the first dr mabuse film which was a silent epic that was like four and a half hours long and, and that was a huge endeavor I took over last year. But uh, I really, really enjoyed uh, The Testament of Dr. Mabuse this time because it's it picks up the story uh, afterwards where he's now in an insane asylum and kind of just like maddlingly scrawling all these kind of half-conceived plans and such on all these like papers <laughs> and they're collected. And strangely then, like these crimes start getting actually committed in you know out in the world and so like he's clearly still having this influence despite being cooped up in this madhouse and it uh a, a whole kind of inspired police procedural takes place is to try and crack this mystery while we're watching the events unfold and are trying to figure out how mabuse fits into this still in the end because his his spectral presence is really felt throughout even though he's definitely more like of a kind of silent and background character uh, as opposed to his uh, prominent role in the first film. And and I think the messaging of it was incredibly powerful because it speaks to something I think that's still relevant even today, and that's the uh, wide-reaching and uh, dangerous influence that evil can have beyond its figureheads, particularly. How does that relate to today? <laughs> well, uh... <laughs> I'm not sure if you know, but uh, currently we're we're going through a time of, uh, you know, clamping down on uh, hate speech on various platforms and such. Um, and, you know, uh, particularly how they can come across in these uh, violent rhetoric uh, mm. in particular. And I think that the way that lines up with the uh, boost here is uh, particularly prescient. Uh, and you can particularly feel the influence because Mabuse came out in the same year, in the same time frame as the the Nazi regime rose to power, the film was actually banned by uh, Goebbels. Really? Uh, because, okay. Yeah, I mean, like a pretty immediately upon release because uh, he, you know, thought that it might, you know, cause, you know, or inspire people to, you know, <laughs> kind of like violently lash out against like the institutions and such. And it was actually a, a kind of apocryphal story that Lang has told and that during the meeting in which he was told by Goebbels that uh you know they were gonna allow the film, he did say as well that he and you know Chancellor Hitler uh loved his earlier film Metropolis as well. And that's when he offered him the job to run the the uh ministry there, the the film's uh sector. 
and uh that's when he said uh you know but i'm uh you know my my mother is jewish you know that right and uh Gerbil said to him then afterwards uh we decide who's jewish <laughs> which you know and, and and then that's when he decided to uh leave germany sure <laughs> but yeah so that's uh coming off the cusp of that and you can really feel that influence that social you know critique underlying every moment of the boost but even outside of that i think it's just a brilliant crime thriller story with his usual visual um bravura um you know lots of still the same kind of silent techniques uh coming into the the foray there but also the kind of masterful use of uh you know like handling of dialogue you feel like he already has out the gate carried over from m and such as well uh you know for a film you know, it came out in 1933 when there's still a lot of films. If you, if you watch a lot of early films, you know that sometimes the dialogue is in direction is clunky. And uh, you don't get that at all here, of course. But, you know, it's it, again, it's it's a testament to his grandeur as a filmmaker as well. I was surprised how well M carried over and felt modern and fresh. Yeah, uh, I think a lot of it has to do as well with just how uh much later you know germany got sound equipment and such like their first yeah. sound film you know i talked about last week as well didn't even come out till 1930 uh it's crazy and, yeah and th so that's three years after you know uh the first big smash sound film came out in in america so they had time to work out all the major technical kinks right away and stuff and so um you know and, and obviously very beneficial from that thereafter and uh so luckily, none of the big hurdles were there in the way. And so you can allow these virtuoso filmmakers like Lang uh, to just completely soar uh, with the new medium. That sounds excellent. I, I think about it sometimes today that films don't feel very dangerous. Like we we had this uh, whole administration and um, I don't feel like films get that same prestige where the government is concerned about them. <laughs> like uh, nobody said no to death of Stalin or uh, black Klansmen. Um, I, I don't feel like they're threatening as much as they used to be. No, uh, certainly not. Like you feel like the reactionary films to this era. Uh, I, well, if anything, they might, you could say they're kind of reflective of the general attitude toward things right now where they're very kind of, uh, kind of just accepting and, pessimistic uh yeah. you know like they they feel like they can't do anything so they don't um which is sad i yeah I wish oh, it there is. Were a film that was dangerous like the hunt was our only film that was taken down by this administration <laughs> it's, it is such a dumb one of, like, of kind of a reactionary thing too as well a different hunt than the one we mentioned earlier yeah. in case anyone's confused <laughs> yeah that's true yeah um different hunt and I, I can't believe that would be the only film. Like, I, I wish there were others. I How could that be the only film that they thought had teeth? Like, uh, Also, just so kind of, like, explicit and, you know, like, unnuanced in, in approach there. Like, it's got to be as literal as possible. I know you didn't like uh, um, Sorry to Bother You, but I felt like that actually had teeth and made my whole theater uncomfortable, at least. I, yeah. Who uh, really makes people uncomfortable, and I like that. Uh, I would say so. It's just, it's a little too blunt, I feel yeah, like, it in, is. Its, in its messaging, you know, it comes across, but it's definitely saying something, at least, and it's not afraid to to get up on a pedestal and preach its message, and, you know, I can admire it, at least for that, if I don't think it's wholly successful. I just feel like the films have become so politically complacent. Like you say, yeah. they, they accept the issue, and then they show pessimism, but they, well, I, they're they not endangering 
the president. It feels like what we're living through as well, where, you know, you have like a whole side of the aisle who just goes along with everything, no matter how incredulous, you know, things become. Yeah. Um, Maybe we'll get more dangerous films the next four years. Uh, Feels like we'll be maybe open to doing that kind of thing and making more dangerous comments about the, the previous administration. So. I'd love let's pitch our live action Darkwing Duck uh, adaptation to Disney. I think that's about as dangerous as we could get. <laughs> let's get dangerous and take a break. All right. Welcome back. We're back with uh, another Eastwood. We've covered several Eastwoods. Uh, yeah. Play uh, Misty with me. I think that was for <laughs> me was our first one. No, 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 there was uh, hints of that at one point. Okay. I think we, we have some vestiges of that watch left in one of those episodes. I don't remember. That I know was... we did a, I did a little bit on Richard Jewell in one episode too. Uh, we did a couple Westerns. I think he's been in a Western or two. Yeah. Have I talked, by the way, have I mentioned that I actually like have an unabashed love for Jersey Boys? Have I said no, that before? I, th- I think you did once, uh, yeah. I love Jersey Boys. Um, I don't know that, that Eastwood made the best film with it. Like in terms of like, it, it doesn't look good on a cinemat- cinematography level. It's very ugly and okay. like watered down color wise. But like the material you're working with there is super great. And I think Eastwood does a great job at bringing it to, to the screen. Uh, and, and I just love the music, of course, of the four seasons. Um and, and I just have a sentimental attachment seeing it on a, a great date with a, my fiance once. And so that, that one's always got a special place in my heart. Uh, even if maybe like, like you could lobby a lot of perfectly valid critiques against it. Hey, I'm not against it. I'm, I'm the biggest Eastwood fan we have around. I mean, I, I stuck with him through all the bad politics and talking to chairs. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think a white hunter Blackheart is still my favorite of his directorial work. I just, more as far as scene. directing goes, uh, this more cohesively is a better movie. But as far as like directions and uh, personal favorites go, I think White Hunter has a place in my heart. That's one we got to talk about sometime. That was, one, so. that, was, that was one of the first films we sat down and watched <laughs> together. I remember that. And it was pretty awesome. It was a pretty awesome experience. Uh, for those, I guess, who don't know, White Hunter Black Heart is this fictional recountance of... Uh, john houston's adventure hunting in africa during the shooting of the african queen and uh it's very much like a blend of that and then also hemingway's like green hills of africa so it's like two things i'm very interested in yeah and and it's definitely feels representative of that and eastwood (laughs) he puts on a good like houston uh kind of like impression not Mm -hmm. uh, like obviously not imitating him but he's like channeling the spirit of houston it's probably the most performance or acting that i i can recall seeing eastwood given a film he's not just his usual kind of like grumbling self there he's really trying to do something i wouldn't say he's you know i wouldn't say he's ever really acting but this time he's grumbling in a houston (laughs) hat that's it matters yeah and it's probably a film most people haven't even heard of or know about and so that's a it's fantastic man we'll we'll get to that as an episode i think Sometime, yeah. We'll put that in Jersey Boys on the, the back burner there to get to for uh, our continued Eastwood watches. But in the meantime, uh, would you say this is like the quintessential directorial film of Eastwood? I think this is the one everyone would 
associate with him most maybe other than like Gran Torino um I I think so I mean he has he has a few that stand out to me but I would say this is really the one it uh, I mean he has he has a few westerns right so Outlaw Josie Wells also stands out to me um I think Million Dollar Baby made a lot of waves. Um, High, High Plains Drifter is one I like, all right. I think that was like his first Western he directed. It's got a, I believe so. like a sense of evilness to it, like this total malevolence that's that's really interesting. Looks like maybe Pale Rider was oh, after Pale, that, Pale Rider, so Pale Rider. Fun. I don't like. It's just worse Shane. <laughs> yeah, at, at points he just makes movies I think are fine. He has a he has a hand like for one of my favorite uh, actor directors. Eastwood has quite a few five out of tens. I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, when you work when you work that much, like he he made a he's made a lot of movies, so yeah, he, uh, you know, no surprise. But he's also like, as we all know, recently Eastwood has drifted into this very kind of homogenous filmmaking territory <laughs> where all the subjects feel kind of like the same, like blandness with like this undercurrent of like kind of American hero worship, you know, yeah. uh, bullshit that's, that's kind of going on and your Sully's and your Richard Jewell's and your 1517's to Paris's and stuff. And it's all kind of monotonous now. He's kind of slipped into like a Paul Greengrass, but occasionally better mode. I, I mean, the mule was a really good movie. Um, they're very, they have a lot of economy. I'd say that um, <laughs> they're not very. I mean, even Richard Jewell is surprising. Like Eastwood really surprises you when he strips things down. Whereas yeah. like Greengrass, like he just put out a western last week, and not that surprising. It's a Greengrass western. Mm-hmm. Well, as far as westerns go, uh, Un- Unforgiven is certainly towards the top. Uh, I, th- I think I've said before that at least, at least for me anyway, uh, Eastwood kind of like close the book on the genre here like this is this is the end of westerns to me anything else post unforgiven it's kind of like this different chapter this post examination of the the genre i think this is really the the stamp on it that that puts kind of the final seal that anyone would have to say about the the myth mythos of the west so i think where i agree is that it's about the end of the the hero myth of the West. It's like the the final point of examination that gives that the uh, not a very pretty burial, but it, but it buries that message with realism and attention to grit. Um, I think as in one lineage of the hero of the West, I think the hero is dead after Unforgiven. I mean, I think it's a f- full burial, and um, the rest is all just uh, remembrance services. <laughs> Yeah, I can't recall any that I've seen that uh, I, I feel like do anything nominally different in, in more recent memory uh, than this has. And and again, I think it's like this ultimate statement on, on myth-making in particular in the West in a very kind of literal sense at some points. And then uh, not only that, but coming from someone whose entire career was defined by being the poster child for the Western hero archetype, uh, you know, I think it, it really comes across even stronger in that sense seeing Eastwood you know basically bury the genre with his two hands he gets to bury it I think that's like the distinction (laughs) is not everyone I wouldn't accept most people burying the western hero but because Eastwood represented late stage western heroism already I feel like he's able to bury himself I mean that was a conscious choice and like when he was making this he believed it would be his last acting directing role I mean he, he thought this was the end of him too, like as an actor director. And uh, it's fascinating to look at that way as a final message. Um, 
of course he he's made a ton since then yeah. but, uh, <laughs> because this went on to win the academy award one of the few westerns to do that like one of three or four i, I believe three i think the first one was a uh, chimeron in like yeah. the 1930s which is uh, most people don't consider very good and then right. uh dances with wolves which was only like two years earlier than this which isn't very good <laughs> so we have one good western that's won the academy award uh this one i yeah um but no, it, it really is a, this terrific coda, I think, for the genre and particularly how it's, uh, like I said, it's, it's very dark. It's a dark Western, unlike most dark Western, not, not like a searcher's kind of dark Western, like a bleak, morbid, yeah. unforgiving Western. It's a great, <laughs> great title there for it that sums up the film perfect. Not even noir, like, I mean, not that kind of darkness, but like really in the dirt of the West, like a... It's, it's mean spirited. It's, you know, uh, begrudging, I think, you know, uh, particularly when it comes to Gene Hackman's character. He's just so like <laughs> casually malevolent, which yeah. which is great about him. Uh, and, but he feels like a, a real person, but like just full of uh, this this kind of hatred and, and egotism and such. And, uh, you know, I, I love the way it portrays violence in the film. It's not like an excessive kind of violence but it's like a feels like a realistic like there's, there's a couple of different times where he just kicks the shit out of people yeah, uh, like men. yeah there, i don't recall very many gunshots in the beginning of the film before no. the, the shootout I, I didn't actually keep track but like i'm pretty sure most confrontations just end with little bill kicking the shit out of someone the beginning I mean, it utilizes knives a lot to get in that that early uh, combat. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it, it opens up. Torn on, up. Shit. Yeah, it opens up on a moment of you know horrific violence and cutting up a woman's face and breasts and such. It doesn't like keep that tone, but that tells you about the kind of movie it's going to be. It's not going to be one where heroes and the bad guys have very much indifference. I mean, they're they're very similar in a lot of ways. And that strips also the idealization of the Western hero down to its core, where uh, once we got to the Italians and the Italia Western, or, or some people call it spaghetti, I think that's pretty awful. Um, once we get to the Italias, people are like, uh, oh, so so these people, they're, they're not much different than the people they're after. Yeah, I, I think that's a great way to look at it. The trajectory of the Western genre, you know, and, and I kind of, went over this when forever ago i wrote that piece on the 10 best westerns and the order in which to watch them um you you know you've got your your early genres then you you know the revival in the late 1930s with like this uh handful of you know exemplary films from the likes of john ford and george marshall and such that's you know solidified the western and popularized it for the next you know two decades um and then towards the end of the 50s, you're getting into the kind of more violent evolution uh, and the darkness of American cinema. And that's where you got like your searchers and stuff going on. And then uh, the the 60s, uh, you're coming in at the the end, the kind of death of the American Western and this, uh, the Italian Western just entirely sweep in and take over with the likes of Leone and Corbucci and such. And they basically flat out say the heroes are just as underhanded and you know murderous as the bad guys are right. they're just a little more cool about it yeah they're all a bunch of bandits and thieves and you know uh, manipulators and such and eastwood really was the 
defining image of that. He made his career off of those, you know, uh, man with no name films and, you know, embodying that character who's, you know, uh, just as corrupted, you know, and selfish as the people he's gunning down. And here, you know, it's not like they have a redeeming quality. It's just that they gun down the person we don't like. I mean, it's, it's, (laughs) that's more sophisticated. I think once you get to those anti-Westerns or revisionist Westerns, you start to see a lot more of that, like post Wild Bunch and McCabe, um, that stuff starts happening more and more. And then Unforgiven, which comes, you know, so much later. And again, in another period of Western revival, there's a good bit of, you know, Westerns in the 90s, like we said, with Dances with Wolves and such. And it really just like completes that, you know, arc there in yeah. that the these guys really are bad. Like they flat out say a couple of times that William Money is a murderer of women and children. You know, he's kind of, uh, I, I wouldn't say remorseless, but he kind of gets back to being that way towards the end of the film. He's, uh, I like his arc even though i think it's a bit overstated in the beginning how he keeps like kind of insisting that he's not like that anymore you know when his actions more than demonstrate that like the fact that he struggles to get on a horse and stuff i think it's a really great way to show that he's totally not that person anymore out of his element and only going back here out of a desperation but it it does overstate a bit uh i have to say just like the one thing i do not like in the film at all is the title cards at the beginning and end because it's 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 unnecessary information that just gets repeated again later on in the movie. I guess it's just so ingrained with my memory of the movie to have that. I I guess I like the background of the title card, and I don't really care about the words. Yeah, no, the, the the image composition is brilliant. If you took the words out, that would be a great like opening that just conveys right. the feeling where you see him, you know, burying his wife there in the beginning, and then you'll get the the ex, you know explained context a bit later on. You know when he flat out says that his wife is you know dead and he had to bury her when he talks to the the kid later you, you don't need that beginning to get beginning yeah you really but don't. anyway um uh but yeah so his struggle to you know kind of become that person again and this regret i think and, and one of the big things the film gets across in a brilliant way is the the amount of like mental you know uh justification and focus and heartlessness it takes to kill someone yeah later on when when ned is is firing and he and he hits the guy but he has to put in the the killing shot and he can't is i think it's a great moment morgan freeman gives us such a terrific performance and showing that he he is actually not that person anymore unlike you know money who has it kind of buried inside and, and is able to kind of wrench it back out again morgan freeman has a lot of performances but this is one of my favorite freemans um it's classic Freeman and I think it shows his range and his ability. Um, There's a lot of talk about like what death means. And I mean, they're not even morally ambiguous. I would say at this point there, there's a very clear decision on where the morals are and they're not always on the side of it. And like, like the boy talking about, you know, he's made five kills before and they're like, Oh, have you like, like, that's not a big number, but they're, I think that's one of the aspects. His his character is such an important aspect for me in terms of the the demythifying of the West and and the kind of stories that we made about him, particularly his like kind of boastfulness, and then that mirrored in the character of English Bob, which of course is the more explicit allegory for you know uh, deconstructing the heroes of the West. Uh, I would say my my favorite scene in the film is the scene in the jailhouse where. 
uh, little Bill just like entirely rips apart this story that he's built up about himself, <laughs> this legend of how he shot uh, the, the two gun guy or whatever. And, uh, you know, being a, an actual witness there, potentially, <laughs> um, sure. he, you know, entirely uh, takes takes down this uh, kind of oversized image of this, you know, fast drawn, you know, uh, Western, you know, hero, when really it was just like anyone else. They, you know, he capitalized on the this moment here uh, where, you know, the guy's gun went off and saying like it exploded, which is something uh, you don't hear about that did actually happen like these weapons that were not necessarily reliable and there's a couple other times in the film where there's like a misfire and an opportunity is capitalized on and, and then in the kind of romanticized westerns of john ford or hawks or whoever you know that never happens it's just you know and the the guns just function perfectly they're they're wizards with these you know uh devices of you know murder essentially and really it was a lot more you know underhanded all the practices there it reminds me kind of in a Deadwood, I think of as well, where they shoot uh, Wild Bill, you know, early on in, in, in the show. And it's just done in this, you know, un, unromantic kind of sense. They just poof, gun him down. As just a corollary for the green grass comparison, he does like the most similar scene to all that in News of the World, which I think is still coming out, actually. <laughs> we'll see. Um, he he kind of strips down and follows the same style. Yeah. Uh, green grass, you, you mean? Yeah, there's a a lot of things that I like about the film, but I think it's just Eastwood's economy and direction. I think I I like how simple and gritty it is, and I think the characters show that off. I mean, I like this kind of hackman. We don't get to see him like this all the time. Yeah, uh, you can see why the the Academy chose to want, uh, honor him for for this role. He really yeah. gets to, uh, you know, it's a little bit of scenery chewing but you know done in a really great way i like like i said i love his malevolence throughout it but you know he he definitely has like command of this town it feels like and he's yeah. got his he's got his uh heel on on everyone there and uh you know having to combat with the uh the women of, of the whorehouse and such and try and keep them in line while uh all of these uh potential assassins are, are coming in to take out these uh you know these these boys essentially who just you know cut up this this one girl for chuckling yeah. at, his, at his dick <laughs> right um yeah i mean you see these all these regressive attitudes and there's so much like that like the misfiring and the and the small dick I mean, there's like uh not not every man is big and with the big gun um mm -hmm. it's a it's an interesting movie that way yeah uh and, and it really gets uh I, I think one of the best aspects of it is that it has this this palpable tension throughout so many of its sequences uh, another great uh, the, like that scene in the jailhouse with little bill as well where he gives him the gun to hold and he says you know you could shoot me and walk out right. of here right away and it's another great moment that demonstrates how hard it is to actually like the, the mental capacity it takes to to shoot someone it's not just about like pulling it out quick and, and firing you have to make a mental decision to take someone's life and that's far harder than any physical action any quick draw motion you know in terms of the actual execution of an execution the western had to get there eventually because i feel like the early stuff not very um psychoanalytical about what it really means when they're all killing each other i mean uh, that kind of, that stuff kind of just happens in the early ones and it makes sense for a psychological profile to build up as we keep examining the west 
and to get closer to what it really means to to be this person. I feel like this is the fullest analysis of of like that end point. Yeah, I, I certainly agree. Particularly the the final shootout has you know this great apex for the film because it still it maintains that that grittiness and and it's still enshrining Eastwood's character as this kind of legendary figure, but also one who is you know cruel and unforgiving you know as the title so dictates and uh you know he's and and it's made sense for his character like it's not like he was always like this in the film you can see this progression of his character and particularly in the tipping point where they do get ned you know and and they they like horrifically display him outside you know as some kind of a trophy you know after they whipped him to death i I know you said that you came out basically the same and we're expecting not to love it nearly as much, but well, I, I think I've come out a little bit less than I, I was expecting. Um, it's it's uh, the, the thing was for me is that the beginning I thought was a little rougher because like I said, yeah. it is a bit insistent in terms of his character. It's it overstates, you know, his, uh, you know, rustiness and his issue with his wife and, you know, how he doesn't drink or whatever all these things it, it like constantly repeats that it really which, does yeah which hurts a bit but as the film goes on and you see that arc start to move on from that point uh then it really gets into the the underlying commentary and again the the brilliant storytelling i think that happened because the film maintains that tension throughout there's a great display of techniques one of the things i noticed this time is that there's a an abundant use of split diopter shots to you know show focus in two different uh planes mm-hmm. uh throughout the film which is really interesting uh i don't recall many other eastwood films that use that device no. So it's it's an interesting cinematic tool to see kind of uh, pulled out for this instance, and it's used quite adeptly. I mean, yeah, he he does have techniques. Um, I guess I walk away from it not really feeling a sense of place. I mean, there's like the ranch and the and the town, but I I don't carry it with me like uh, once in the west or you know. Yeah, all my favorite westerns really have a resounding sense of place, like Monument Valley or something in them that's like shit that's that's what that is but i don't really have that here i think i would disagree slightly with that and just in terms of the environment itself the wyoming setting i think is a very rich and underutilized uh western sphere and uh you get a wide variety of landscapes although there is like a little bit of weirdness i did watch like inconsistency like there's at one point like like, i think they state the date at some point when uh uh when uh English Bob comes into town. They say it's the 4th of July. He makes a crack about that or something. And then, like, maybe, like, four or five scenes later, uh, Eastwood's, like, holed up in the cabin uh, with the, the girls cut up, and uh, yeah. it's, it's snowing outside, <laughs> which is just kind of odd. And then the next sure. scene, there's no snow. And I'm like, hmm, all right. Uh, but overall, I, I like the, the planes look of it, which is, you know, less that you usually get. But yeah, I, I can also understand why why there's like because because it is kind of limited locations. You got like the main house, the like quarry or whatever that they're having their shootout at. The town, of course, a big whiskey, which is really just two locations. There's like you know the bar and then the dilapidated uh, house of uh, Little Bill. And I think that's a funny character detail as well that he's like this terrible carpenter <laughs> yeah like the, the scene where he's talking with uh the the author the uh the writer in in his cabin and there's like jugs everywhere being filled up with rainwater is kind of a funny comic detail yeah um i i guess there are i guess it's a movie of locations but i don't get like a 
a sense of a sweeping space. It's not like a big journey film for me. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, it's a it's a film about a town. I mean, I I get it. Yeah, just like you know, what's that saying go? There's like two stories. You uh, you know, stranger comes to town, or you know, a person leaves a, on a journey. <laughs> yeah. And this one's a, it's a little bit of both, I guess. Yeah, it it's got a bit of both, but I I don't. I mean, I guess I'm around where you are now, but I started like way way up, and I. All right, this was like a all time kind of film for you <laughs> prior to this. Like you know, right now you're coming across more like eh, it's all right, but no, I I get that you're really more like all right, this is almost you know brilliant and un you know assailable it's probably that i've also <laughs> watched a ton of westerns since so i i feel like i've i filled in a, a higher a higher end than this I, I do feel like this is probably not true for everyone but like unforgiven uh you know because it is also more contemporary is mm-hmm. a western that a lot of people are exposed to sooner than perhaps a lot more the like the classics and such yeah uh you know along with the other like eastwood spaghetti ones and and such and so it's also very different uh you know something like the good the bad and the ugly i think will always kind of permeate and stay with pop culture because it's uh flashy and fun and exuberant uh and this one's definitely a lot more dour which doesn't mean it's worse you know it's just very different and you know one is eminently more watchable than the other and, and, and that's not say, this is hard to watch necessarily either it's still a very easy film to kind of get into i was gripped watching it like oh, the entire time me, last night me too totally like i just feel like level watching it i mean i there's something special here i just don't think it's the the best western i mean there's there's so many others that i've seen since that, uh, that well, kind of surpassed I, this that's why i picked nine other films on my list <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know it's yeah i agree not the best best but if someone also told me they thought it was the best i could see it sure um if they hadn't seen others <laughs> you know the others on that list yeah um they should go see searchers if they feel that way but um there's still plenty to like about it and i i guess at that point i could agree that it's the end of that mythology and it had to be on that list for it to make sense um yeah well in terms of what that list was if we want right. to keep going back to that well um a, a film to kind of cap off that list i don't know that there's anything more fitting you could go with uh man who shot liberty valance or once upon a time in the west but they're also the ending of a different kind of western yeah. you know particularly in the case of liberty valance which was ford's conclusion on the genre in the kind of the same way that this is eastwood's and uh that's another film i'm going to look forward to talking about sometime because i think it's also another brilliant uh coda for the genre there uh and again in a, in a markedly different kind of way it's you know it looks back on on myth making with the more romantic lens but also in terms of you know the way we tell stories stories in particular it's got that famous line you know when the legend becomes fact print the legend yeah i i I see how this ended i guess i guess this makes sense as the end of the mythos of the western hero but for me there's like an addendum happening now definitely Um, i I was gonna say as well like the most prominent westerns i think we're seeing post unforgiven are are these modern westerns in the form of no country for old men or hell yes. or high water and stuff and so it's this you know post commentary on the genre and how it reflects on today i feel like maybe even there's potentially a new chapter starting that's more feminist and is revision revising it to like more modern cultural standards i feel like 
maybe the book's already closed, but maybe there's a new new edition coming in years that's going to like establish the works of like the writer Nomadland, uh, First Cow, Hostiles, um, Lead on Pete. Um, those are like socially progressive westerns. Like I could include like the neo west of the others to like Hell or High Water and, mm-hmm. and No Country, but I feel like there's a there's a progressive movement happening that's like matching it to the. the I feel I, today. I agree with you. The successful westerns of today have a modern perspective infused in their setting, be it a period setting or not. Um, there, you know, the film films like Unforgiven, which do feel specifically in their time and reflective on the mythos itself you know, are still absent largely of those contemporary politics and, you know, progression, whereas the Westerns we're seeing nowadays are very much reflective of their time, you know, and their, you know, ideals uh, in a way that even earlier Westerns weren't. So I think that's the movement we're seeing now in a post-Unforgiven world. And again, it's not a a good or bad thing. That's just, you know, the way that things have moved. And I think, as we said, largely because... There's not a whole lot left to be said after something like Unforgiven comes along and, and really does close the book on it and s- makes that final statement about, you know, I mean, the heroism and myth making and such. Yeah. Who would you trust to restart that? That, like we said, we trusted Clint Eastwood to close that book. So who's really trustworthy well, to restart that combat? Nobody it's, really. It's kind of, yeah, it's kind of the same thing earlier. Like I said, I think the mirror with Ford and how he ended the genre is a, is a great example because the only reason that, that we had that revival in the 30s was because of someone like Ford who swept in with Stagecoach and, and redefined things after making Westerns kind of throughout the silent era and such and being a, you know, proprietor of, of the genre there while it was on its last legs and then coming in and, you know, bringing it back in this, you know, significant and revelatory manner. And Eastwood is the the more modern parallel to that in the way that he rose up to become the ideal of the, the genre and, you know, perpetuated it through not only his performances, but the films he directed, like we mentioned, Josie Wales and Pale Rider and, you know, uh, High Water, uh, Hydroplanes Drifter and such, and then capping it off with Unforgiven, which was not only, you know, like you said, his intended kind of final star vehicle thing, but it's still the last statement he has on the Western genre. And uh, yeah. I, I would be, you know, uh, saddened. I, I think it would be a mistake if he tried to take anything else up after that. If he tried to come back with some, you know, Western film after this. again, I, I, I think thought it about it. I, I don't think he could. I, I don't, I don't think he wants to either. Yeah. But uh, if, if he were ever entertaining the idea, I would uh, greatly discourage it. <laughs> Like, I think naturally his work has to have elements of this stuff that influenced him and and his whole filmography. But uh, like the mule must have Western influences, but it's a guy like taking drugs, you know, and pecan pies. I'm I'm expecting he's gonna stick in his vein of like you know noble heroism in modern age with that conservative appeal. Like what his next film, I bet, is gonna be like Giuliani on 9/11 or something. He had another one coming up. I, I it's hard to keep up. What was it like? Sad something. Sad it's probably sad. Hours. Whatever it is, I don't know. Sad <laughs> sounds like a good uh, name for whatever it is. Um. Yeah, but uh, I'm still a Eastwood fan. Like, like I say, I've I've come away from this not believing that it is a ten out of ten. Naturally, I think it's more of a, a middle nine. I, I think it's I think it's great and deserves its place. 
and deserves its best picture trophy. I don't think it's the only Western that ever deserved one that was good, but um, obviously, I mean, there, there are at least like 20 others I think should have gotten best picture, but that's fine. I, it's good. I, I like all the actors in it. it it's fun. I, I do. I am realizing now that we uh, have squandered a fantastic opportunity in discussing this since you are such an Eastwood fan. You probably should have just conducted the show talking to an empty chair. Uh, I feel like that would have been more representative of uh, the kind of character that we wanted to this podcast. I know we talked about going into this show with our best kind of Eastwood, you know, embodiment coming in, but really that would have been the best way to conduct this. Uh, I shouldn't have been here at all. It would have been nice. Uh uh, I think this worked out just as well, though. So, no, I was happy to talk about this one. Uh, we've been talking about doing it for a while, but I, I always insisted. I'm like, this can't be the first Eastwood Western we talk about. That'd be ridiculous. So we we knocked out those uh, the Leone trilogy, you know, uh, intermittently last year, which was a good exercise uh, that I painfully put Calvin through critiquing all of his favorite movies. Those were the hardest podcasts <laughs> we've done. Um, I'm sure, especially like Fistful. I was not very nice to Fistful. (laughs) That was really difficult for me because, well, I think it's as good as this. Um. (sighs) All right. (laughs) Well, that's probably as good a place to end it as any, right? Cry Macho. That's the new movie. (laughs) All right. Uh, Thanks for tuning in this week. Make sure, as always, to check out our website, thetwingeeks.com, for our latest reviews, retrospectives, and features. You can follow us on Twitter as well, at The Twin Geeks, and individually at Calvin Kempf and at David A. Punch. Don't forget to check out our sister video game show, The Daydream Cast, with Pavlos and Brogan, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are played. Leave a review and rating when you can, if you liked what you hear. And we'll see you next week for another conversation on classic and contemporary cinema. See you, Calvin. Sounds good. Thanks so much, man. It'll make me feel better Knowing you watch me like the moon